So our our text that we're going to be in this morning, though, is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. That's the passage we're going to focus on. And Morgan's been taking us through Ephesians. Well, Colossians really is a, a parallel epistle, if you will. If you read Colossians, you'll see so many similar things that the Apostle Paul uh, says in these letters. Uh, but they also have their own uh, uniqueness, their own emphasis. And so with Colossians, well, this is a letter that was sent from the Apostle Paul to a local church in the small town of Colossae. Colossae was a small town. How many of you were born and raised in a small town? That's right. Well, Colossae was a small town, small little podunk town, off the beaten path, off the main highway. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church. And he hadn't actually met any of them. He had heard reports from co-workers of his, uh, those who had taken the gospel there. People received the gospel. A church was started, and Paul gets word of this, and he wants to give them this letter of instruction. So in this epistle, what the Apostle Paul does is he gives the Lord's instruction to the Colossian Christians in order that they would be guarded against false teaching in their region and also that they would be guided towards maturity in Christ. That's the the purpose of the letter. And the driving theme throughout this epistle is the supremacy of Christ over all things. The supremacy of Christ. And, in light of that, the sufficiency of Christ in all things. So in our passage this morning, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he paints with his words one of the most majestic portraits of Christ in all of Scripture. Let's read it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the first statement we see in this passage concerning Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, in that statement, Paul is not saying of Christ what Scripture says of man in general. Scripture tells us that God made man, both male and female, according to his image, after his own likeness. But Paul states here, what does he say of Christ? Well, he says that Christ He is that very image. God created mankind as relational beings with personal wills and the ability to reason and to love and to exercise dominion over the earth. And in this way, man bears the image of God, although that image, we could say clearly, in light of what we've read in Genesis 3, in light of looking around the world today, 
that image has been severely marred and suppressed because of man's sin. However, Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who became flesh and entered into this fallen world to save sinners, well, he is the full and perfect image of the invisible God. We read in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John 14, 9, the Lord's word, uh, words himself, he said, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. In other words, if you've seen me, you have seen God. So back in our text, we see that Christ is he's not only the image of the invisible God, but also the firstborn of all creation. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we hear that word firstborn. Well, it has one of two meanings. It either refers literally to first in birth order, or it, in light of that, can be used figuratively to speak of one who is first in rank, first in rank. And the typical custom in ancient times was that firstborn son, son who was born first, was granted special rights and privileges. He was given the right to the family inheritance. Or if he had brothers, well, he would receive at least a double portion of what they would. Special privileges, rights and privileges as the firstborn son. And in light of this, this term firstborn was also used as a title and referenced uh, one's superiority in rank. And that's how the Apostle Paul used this term of the Lord Jesus Christ here. He refers to him as the firstborn of all creation. Now, what we can't do is understand this to mean that Christ was firstborn among creation, as if he were some created being as well and, and therefore a part of the creation. That's not what Paul is saying in that phrase. Although you get some people knocking on your doors trying to share some news with you, Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll like to point to that passage and say, ha, ha, ha. He was born. He's a created being. Well, it is not that if we actually look at the whole passage, later in the passage we see in the very next two verses, Paul says that he created all things and he existed before all things. Therefore, Christ does not, he doesn't rank first among all of creation, but firstborn of all creation means he's firstborn, superior in rank, over and above all of creation. That's how you, you properly understand that phrase. And starting in verse 16, the Apostle Paul begins to explain his statement that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. He gives an explanation here. And we can tell this by his transition, his use of the word for at the beginning of the verse. And alternatively, it could be translated because. He makes the statement, he says, for or due to the fact that by him all things were created by him, by who? By the Son, Christ. All things were created. The Greek word that is translated as by is the preposition that literally means in. In. Which is why it's offered, if you're looking at your ESV, it's offered as an alternative reading in the textual footnote in your translation. If you look down, usually there's a little mark there, and you look down at the bottom, it says, or could be read this way, in him rather than by him. For in him all things were created. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, we see this phrase occur in the passage a lot, in him, or, or, or the preposition in, and the phrase in him. We see the preposition in five times. In each case, it's translated as in, not uh, by. So verse 16, we see the phrase in heaven. Verse 17, in him. Verse 18, in everything. Verse 19, in him. And verse 20, in heaven. Same preposition every time. And two of those are the same phrase, in him, referring to Christ. So we have this statement, in him, all things are created. So what's meant by that statement? Here's what it means. All things are created in reference to him. In reference to him. It is a way of stating the central role and position that Christ has in relation to all that has been made. Do you see that? So it, it's saying something specific. Paul will get to the idea that Christ is also, all things are created through him. But here he says, in him. In reference to him, all things were made. He has a central role and position to everything that has been made. In other words, everything revolves around him. All things were made in reference to him. Now think about it. If, if that's true of the cosmos, of the universe, is that true of your life? I mean, we see this grand statement about the position, the supreme authority and central role that Christ has to all things that exist. And instead of just stopping at the theological truth there, think about how that should be reflected in the life of little old you. Tiny, tiny little speck in time, our lives. And yet, the one who's central to all things, well, certainly we should understand that if, he, if, the center, if he's the center of the universe, our lives should revolve around Christ. He should be the center of everything that we do. He should take prominence. Now, when we hear all things, we may initially think only in terms of the physical world we live. Hey, everything was made. Everything was made in reference to Christ. But Paul makes a point to emphasize that by all things, well, he means, he means all things. He says, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In other words, all things in the earthly or material realm, which is visible to us, and perhaps you could say at the time, maybe invisible, I don't know, every little tiny organism that you can't see with the naked eye, that too. But not just the material realm he's talking of, he's also talking about everything in the heavenly or spiritual realm was made in reference to Christ, the things that are truly invisible to us. Paul clarifies that all things in the invisible spiritual realm includes well, the mighty angels, whom he refers to as, you'll see, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. It's a reference to angelic beings. And these spiritual beings have tremendous power and authority. And this is clearly revealed throughout Scripture. They're terrifying. They're powerful. They are servants of God, and yet we know that many have rebelled. So you have holy angels and unholy angels. But nonetheless... Tremendously powerful spirit beings, these angels. And yet even they, mighty as they are, as feared as they are, even the highest of their order, while they are still created beings whose existence is centered upon Christ. In addition to this, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, all things were created through him. 
through Christ, through the Son. Scripture tells us that all things were created and brought into existence according to the Father's will. And here we see that it was through the Son that the Father's will was accomplished. See, so God made the world. Well, it was the will of the Father carried out through the Son in creating the universe. In other words, Christ is the Son of God who created all things according to and in perfect harmony with his Father's will. We read in the Gospel of John, the opening of John's Gospel, and speaking another exalted view of Christ, a majestic portrayal of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, referring to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's God the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 14, in that opening of that gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. Not only were all things created through Jesus, the Son of God, but the Apostle Paul goes on to say in our passage in verse 16, all things were created, what? For him. For him. All things on earth, all things in heaven, even the mightiest of the angels, all of it, all were created for him. Now, all things in the beginning were declared very good. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, and we read the account of God's creation of the world and everything in it. The heavens and the earth. And with each, in six days, he made everything and rested on the seventh, right? And at the conclusion of each day, he saw what he made. And it was good. It was good. And at the conclusion of that creation week, beholding all that God had made, he declared it to be very good. And all of that it was made for who? For the sun. All of it. Now, obviously, we know when we keep reading Genesis and we get to chapter 3, we, we know that this, this state of being very good didn't last long. The state of perfection, perfect harmony with God didn't last long. For many of the angels rebelled against God, and afterwards, the chief of those rebel angels led Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And this resulted in the natural world, that is, the earth and all that's in it, falling under the curse of God and being subjected to futility and death. And yet... Despite the rebellion, despite its consequences, despite the, the fallen and fallenness and brokenness of the world, which is evident every day, so clear, despite all that, the truth remains that all things have been created for Christ. That didn't change. And that's reassuring. You know why? Because it assures us that the rebellious activity of the world in this present evil age, it will one day come to an end. It was all made for the sun. It will come to an end. There will not be an eternal rebellion. Time will run out. All things will be brought to the rightful end and be for the sun as they were intended to be. So we can have reassurance in that. And again, thinking of your life or maybe in the present circumstances we find ourselves in today, Every time we turn on the news, but why do that anymore? Propaganda channels, 
whatever you're listening to, find out what's going on in the world, and you realize how much of a mess it is. How it's still, nothing has changed since the days of Noah, full of wickedness of men, corrupting the earth. Things are not right. Disorder, chaos, violence, hatred, murder, corruption. And yet, we know in the beginning it was all made for Christ, and it will be perfected. It will all be made right so that it can be for him ultimately. That's God's intention. It will not remain this way forever. One commentator says that Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being, and he stands at its end as the goal of the universe. Everything is heading in that direction towards what? Towards Christ. He's the goal of everything in the universe. According to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.10, the Father's plan for the fullness of time is to unite or sum up all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10. So to summarize the truth of Colossians 1.16, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is the firstborn over all creation because... Well, he is the focus of creation, he's the agent of creation, and he's the goal of creation. All things are created in him and through him and for him. We see in Hebrews 1, 2, the, the truth that the universe was made according to the will of the Father as an inheritance for the Son. All things were made for him, the Father's inheritance for the Son. In the opening of Hebrews, you read that God appointed his son through whom he created the world to be the heir of all things. That's his position, supreme. All of it is his, all of it will be. It is his inheritance. Now look at verse 17 in our passage. Paul says of Christ, he is before all things. Oh, if Christ created all things, and he certainly existed before all things. As God the Son, he is eternal. Want a clear passage that points to the eternality of Christ? To understand that he's not just the Son of God and, and, and somehow uh, less than the Father. No, he is God the Son. Co-equal, co-eternal. He is before all things. And then Paul says, and... In him, all things hold together. All things hold together. Well, if all things have been, as Paul said in the previous verse, created through Christ and for Christ, then it follows that not only were all things created in him, but also that in him all things hold together. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, is the reason why everything continues to exist and doesn't descend into chaos and totally fall apart, right? Just again, as we think of the God's purpose, the Father's purpose for creating the world is an inheritance for the Son. It was created for him. He holds, so the Son holds all things together. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's not only the creator of all things, but also the sustainer of all things. This is the one whom we worship. This is the one who we call Savior and Lord. And we read of in the Gospels as a, uh, one who came in humility, born in poverty, came as a servant, a bondservant, to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet, at the same time, he's the one who created all things. 
and he is the one who holds all things together, the sustainer. Scripture says, again, Hebrews chapter 1, I think we could say Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1, right there, emphasizing the supremacy of Christ. Hebrews 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So as, as the, the child's song goes, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. He does. Right there, biblical truth. Sing it, kids. Adults, that'll be our closing song. No, we have something else, but it'll be fitting. He's got the whole world in his hands. So don't forget, when you read uh, the, the, the lowly servant in the Gospels, at the same time is, is God the Son in the flesh, the, the creator and sustainer of all things, all-powerful, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, get big theological truth, but that should apply to your lives as well, right? If, it, if it's true of the whole universe, you've got to realize that it's, it's true of your life as well, which is why I would say if you are in right relationship with Christ, you have come to him in repentance and faith. You are submitting to him as the Lord. Then he will order your life. Your life will, will taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience the blessing of God, the orderliness, the peace that he brings. He upholds the whole universe, but he also, and holds all things together, but he also can, he, he will hold your marriage together. He will hold your home together, your parenting, your work and your friendships and your pursuits. Well, all those things will be held together if you're in right relationship with Christ and your focus is him, right? So big theological truth of the whole world, but think about it, the importance of this truth in your personal life. Everything in your life should revolve around Christ. He's the center of the universe. How much he should be the center of your life. And all things are held together by him. Well, you should see him that way, that I need Christ, my dependency on him, if I want to glorify God in my relationships, and my work, uh, with the short time I have on this earth, I need to turn to the one who holds all things together. And I'll see that reality in my own life. So what Paul has made clear about Christ in verses 16 and 17 is that nothing and no one is greater than him. Nothing and no one precedes him. Nothing and no one exists without him. Nothing and no one is independent of his authority. He is supreme. He's the reason why all things exist. It is all about him. It is all about him. But, well, Paul's not finished. Look at verse 18. He goes on to say that Christ is the head of the body. Head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul continues to emphasize Christ's supremacy over all things and points to the fact that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. Christ is the head of the church, meaning he's our highest authority. The church is his. He is the head. He is the highest authority. He is supreme. And 
Paul says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Well, that reminds us of the fact that Christ, well, he went to the cross, right? He was laid in the tomb, but on the third day he rose, and he, he ascended in glory. He is exalted in glory. That We are reminded of the fact that he went before us into everlasting glory. He's the first one. He died for our sins and rose again, and and we are, those who belong to him, we are following after him in faith to obtain what? A resurrection like his. Once again, Paul has highlighted the superiority of Christ in precedence and rank, firstborn from the dead. But we have a hope, the hope of glory, it's referred to as, because we know that as he was raised from the dead, bodily, unto glory, so we also who are trusting in him will be. But he is the first he made the way so that sinners like us who are trusting in him can follow after him and receive the blessing of salvation through faith in him. And Paul concludes this thought in verse 18 with the following statement. This idea that, that Christ is superior, he's supreme in precedence and rank. And, and Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent. So he made this statement about the whole universe, and now he's making the statement about the church. He's the head of the body. He's the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything, Christ might be preeminent. So everything in this passage has been building up to this point. That statement, the word preeminent, what does that mean? It means having superiority over all others in rank, in dignity, or importance. There's nothing in all of creation, no creature, no object, no act that can compete with the greatness of Christ. We have to see him that way. I mean, we can, we can see on our level things that are greatness, man's achievements, right? And we can be impressed, but everything infinitely pales in comparison to, to Christ's supremacy, his greatness, his majesty. In verses 19 through 20, Paul writes this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. This means that the totality of God's power and attributes reside in Christ. He's not partly divine, right? He is truly God in the flesh. And therefore, as the God-man, he was both qualified and able, what, to, to die on the cross for the sins of all who believe. He had the ability. Why? Because he wasn't just a man. Wasn't just a righteous man. He was God in the flesh. All the power of God and attributes of God resided in him bodily. And on the cross, Christ bore the full penalty of the sins of all whom the Father had chosen to save before the foundation of the world. He bore their sins so that there would be a holy and righteous people to inherit his coming kingdom and the new world that he will make after destroying all wickedness, all evil. See, if Christ didn't come to give his life as a ransom for sinners, there would be no people in the future kingdom. There would be no human race to reflect the image of God in a new creation. All would be lost because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Christ came to give his life to purchase those whom the Father had given him, pay their ransom that they might be reconciled to God and inherit 
his inheritance with him, his kingdom. It is Christ's sacrifice on the cross that guarantees not just that those for whom he died will be reconciled to God, but notice that Paul says all things will be reconciled to God through him. If we, if we looked at another epistle that Paul wrote, Romans, in chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, we read this. Paul says, For the creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God subjecting the world to futility because of the sin of man. The creation was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation groans, but it, it is going to one day be released from that subjection to futility and corruption and death. And what is the, the timing of that? Well, it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The Lord had to redeem men first to inherit a new world. So if Christ did not come into the world to give his life as a ransom for many and die for sins and rise again, there would be no reconciliation of the world because the world in its state of rebellion and bondage to corruption would be subject to re reap only the just wrath of its holy and righteous creator. That's what the world deserves. But praise be to God that he sent his son. He loved the world in that way that he gave his only son that Whoever believes in him would not perish. And also, guess what? The world would not perish. The actual universe would not perish because he would reconcile all things to the Father through his accomplishment and work on the cross. So from the beginning, it was the Father's purpose to create all things for the Son, and he has indeed sent his Son into the world to save the world through him. And as we see in verse 20 of our text, the Father will reconcile to himself all things through the Son, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the cross. The statement that all things will be reconciled to God does not mean, it does not mean that all moral creatures will receive pardon for their rebellion and brought into loving fellowship with God. That's called universalism. What is, you know, everybody gets saved. Isn't that nice? That makes us feel better. Just, you know, everybody, love wins. But that's not what's being taught here. The reconciliation of all things means that the rebellion of the world against God will end. And it will be exchanged for universal submission to God. And this is accomplished through Christ Jesus, the Son of God. So those who are saved by the grace of God, what happens to them in this life, saved by the grace of God? Well, they, they will joyfully submit to Christ now. And those who remain in their sin, though they do not submit to Christ now, they will be forced to submit to Christ. All things ultimately are going to be brought into subjection to Christ. So for the sinner, saved by grace is brought into subjection now. Bondservant of Christ, slave of Christ, now. The rebel who persists and does not repent will be forced to submit to Christ later, but beyond the time of grace. Either way, all things will be reconciled through 
Christ and united under him. That's how we have to see ourselves. This is Christ. We need to be under him, under his lordship. He is master, ruler, lord, and savior. And all will be under him. But the call to every sinner here and now is repent, for the judgment is coming, and there is only one who can save, that's Jesus. He is Lord. We read about this subjection to Christ in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. He came in humility, he was exalted in glory. Uh, Paul wrote this, and being found in human form, he, the Lord, the Son, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, just not, that's not just talking about believers who receive the gospel and believe the gospel and trust in Christ now. That is all creatures in the end will confess that he is Lord. He is exalted over all. All things will be reconciled through the Son because all things will ultimately be brought under the rule of the Son to the glory of the Father. I think there's a great summary just to conclude. It's actually found in the ESV Study Bible. It's a, it's a great little note concerning Colossians 1.20, speaking of the supremacy of Christ taught in this passage as a whole. Here's what it says. As the Prince of Peace... Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as his friends. As for non-believers and demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them, for their rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as the conquering king so that they can no longer do any harm in the universe. The basis for Christ's reign of peace is the blood of his cross. The cross truly is the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. Wow. All things are made in reference to him. All things are made through him. All things are made for him. Is that reflected in your life? Is he Lord of your life? He knows all things. All things are made for him. Does your life look to him as the center of all things? Are your plans, your pursuits, your goals, in your temporary life here, your days are numbered, We're like a mist, vanishes here one day, gone the other, right? Life is short. And in this short life, the time that God's given you on this earth, does it reflect the reality that it's all about Jesus? He's Lord. And he's the only one who can save. Praise God that he's had mercy on sinners like us. And we would pray that anyone in here who does not trust in Christ, that you would bow the knee now, that you would repent and you'd give your life to Jesus to serve him and him alone because it's ultimately all about him and this whole world belongs to him. And if you want to be a part of that future glorious kingdom and not be a part of the coming judgment and wrath of God that you deserve, you need to repent today, trust in Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for seeing how exalted and glorious your son is and how we need to be reminded because we are so nearsighted, short-sighted in this earthly life 
that you've given us, but you've given us this life for a reason, and ultimately it is to glorify you. It is to glorify and serve your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom all of this was created for. And, and you have, for many of us, Lord, you have shown us grace and mercy. You have taken us off the path of rebellion. You've given us eyes to behold him as he truly is, that we would respond in repentance and faith when we hear the gospel of what you've done to reconcile sinners to yourself through him and him alone. And you've helped us see that he truly is Lord over all, and including, including us. And we know that you did that and you've given us remaining days on this earth so that we would walk in good works, walk in obedience to Christ, and be made more and more like him, which gives you all the glory and praise. It, it, it honors you um, that we're walking in obedience to the Son. Help us to do that. And Lord, I pray for your grace and mercy on any who have, who have been near the, the, the blessings of the transformed life that Jesus brings uh, to, to many around them, but they truly haven't experienced it themselves. They have not been given a new heart. They still have been continuing in their sin. Father, we pray that you give them eyes to behold your son as he truly is, that they would truly repent. They truly would come under the lordship of Christ Jesus, your son, and that they might taste and see that his reign, his rule, his wisdom is good, pleasing, and perfect. Have mercy on, on them today, Lord. May your grace be with us all. Amen.